again for allowing me to preach the Word of God to you. Before I get started, I want to uh, just give a, uh, a warm uh, thank you to our host family. Um, when we first arrived, I met Mr. and Mrs. Filsick, and they swore to me that I should never call them Mr. and Mrs. again, but I can't help doing that. Um, but also, when I first arrived, I knew within about two seconds that we would survive them for the week, but... The question was <laughs> whether they would survive us, and you have, so praise God. Mrs. Filsick, I did want to say that your laughter is contagious, and uh, Mr. Filsick, your humility and service is contagious as well. So, brother, we've been uh, greatly blessed by you, so thank you both. Um, pray with me once more before I get started. I'm, I'm in much weakness this morning. Father, I do ask that you would please meet us here by the power of your word. This text is hard, it's humbling, and it's a holy place where we often fail so miserably to stay and ponder and act as Christians in suffering for our own sin. So would you please grant grace to the hearers this morning that their minds and their hearts would be turned to you, humble to hear, able to receive, and for the preacher, Lord, that you would grant strength by the power of your Holy Spirit to proclaim your truth for the glory of your name, for the good of your church. In Christ's name I ask, amen. Well, there's a great lacuna in contemporary evangelical theology. This lacuna has left the church without any way of really processing and progressing past a grand fact of our daily existence in Christ, and that is our battle with sin. What is this lacuna? What's the missing piece? It's a theology of suffering, but it's not any suffering. Now, if you scour the resources on Amazon, just type in suffering in the Christian life, you'll find that most, if not all, of the works dealing with the subject are in the context of things like illness, death, loss, suffering happening to us. Rarely, if ever, will you find an expose on the overlooked and mishandled topic of deserved suffering. Suffering happening because of us. Now, maybe that mere fact of stating it that way, deserved suffering is a startling one, yet I would argue it is a major category of sanctification in the life of the Christian. So notice the language, deserved suffering, not divine judgment. We can't confuse the two. One is the instrument of a father in the formation of a child. The other is the instrument of a judge in the punishment of a criminal. Divine judgment has been exhausted in the body of Christ. Deserved suffering has not. It remains a tool, a corrective measure. I would even argue a grace, though for a time it is very, very painful. My task is not so much to convince you of deserved suffering for sin, but to draw your heart to God and ask how we ought to lament while suffering. Have you ever given any thought to that? When a Christian suffers for their sin, when we suffer for our sin, when a church suffers because of sin, do we know how to orient ourselves in that suffering? Suffering can be a very disorienting time. God has not left us without an answer. This disorientation of deserved pain and suffering are treated by one of the most orderly books in the Old Testament, and it's a book wholly devoted to the subject of deserved suffering. Lamentations is a book, a memorial, that conveys the pain and confusion caused by divine punishment in response to human sin. So there's five succinct poems in this book. They're cleverly structured. They're in an acrostic pattern. They follow the Hebrew alphabet. They're complete in themselves. 
And this, this purpose of writing, this way of writing, gives shape to and proper reflection of the meaning of our suffering for sin. So it's so strange and so wise of God that in a disorienting period in our life, the book that we're reading, the chapter in itself, is one of the most structured books in the Old Testament. Here we find suffering really explored A to Z, both fully expressed yet within limits. We find a form of of protest, a way to process our emotions, a place to voice confusion. You can see that in the first, oh, 18 verses of this chapter. Suffering is a powerful concept and a powerful teacher. Here we have a master class on the subject. God in his fatherly grace is teaching us how to process suffering. So we're going to discover our text in five points, as any good Calvinist would. First, we will see hope destroyed. Hope destroyed. Second, we will see hope rises. Third, we will see and consider hope's content. Fourth, we will consider hope's meditation. And finally, we will consider hope's confession. So the background of our text is the siege of Jerusalem in 586 BC. Lamentations is written from Babylon. It's written after one of the most tragic events in the life of the people of God, the destruction and ransacking of the city of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, after Israel had been taken away captive, Jerusalem was laid waste outside of Damascus in a small cave. Jeremiah sat weeping over the city and he penned the work we have before us today. The intensity of this language suggests the freshness of the event in Jeremiah's mind. Now, as the the poem progresses from chapter 1 to chapter 2, there's an emotional intensity of Jeremiah's lamentation. It reaches a climax, really, in chapter 3. And Jeremiah plainly lays out the exquisite nature of his pain. He's experiencing this and digesting it firsthand. So it's far from a dispassionate recounting of the events in his life. Jeremiah gives this full-throated and deeply personal and emotional expression of grief due to deserved suffering. So the Holy Spirit is using this agent of pain to produce this masterpiece. So we see, first of all, in the first 18 verses, hope destroyed. So it's important for us to notice in these first 18 verses who destroyed his hope. The context of the entire interaction hinges upon this fact. It's God alone who destroyed Jeremiah's hope. He did not blame it on the devil. He did not blame it on his culture. Jeremiah was dealing face to face with God. If you count the times, it's 19 times in the first 18 verses, God is the subject and the source of Jeremiah's deserved suffering. Jeremiah was under the rod of his wrath. He, that is God, made his flesh waste away. He broke his bones. He did not hear his prayers. He made his paths crooked. He has filled him with bitterness. And on and on and on. Metaphorically speaking, God was a predator and Jeremiah was the prey. God was an archer. Jeremiah was the target. Jeremiah was a free man. God put him in chains. A hunger for righteousness was only to be refreshed with bitterness. Probably most striking about this fact is almost the divine antagonism displayed in these verses. There's this gradual aggravation. God seemed intent to aggravate Jeremiah. God seemingly misled him and then besieged him like an enemy and finally rolled him in the ashes, totally crushed and helpless. This was not Jeremiah unintentionally falling. It was God Leading. Look at verse 2. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. If we're uncomfortable with this idea, we must wrestle with the fact that it was the Holy Spirit 
that led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. It was God who did this. It was God who destroyed Jeremiah's hope. But notice, secondly, the stark nature by which Jeremiah describes his destruction. He cares nothing about keeping up appearances. He describes his situation in the greatest available language his mind could conceive concerning what God had become to him. He's not shy about it. He doesn't think it's beneath himself as a dignified man of God to weep bitterly, openly, publicly. I have no peace in my soul, Jeremiah says, verse 17, chapter 1. But you don't sound like a believer, Jeremiah. Are you sure you're saved? No Christian thinks this way. You seem so depressed. Where is your joy? You know, the fruit of the Spirit is joy, and if you have the Spirit, you should be full of joy, you know? I've forgotten what happiness is, Jeremiah replies. Why the long face? You're not looking so good these days, Jeremiah. You used to be so involved. What happened? My endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Jeremiah was an honest man more than he was a religious man. I hope you understand the difference. Or should I say that Jeremiah's religion was honest? Religion can paint a facade. Jeremiah had none, no facade. He was candid in a way that many today are simply uncomfortable with. So notice the stark nature by which Jeremiah describes his destruction. But notice also the confusion of mind that suffering brings. The stark nature of his suffering caused him to seemingly forget the name of his God. Jeremiah says his hope from the Lord had perished. This name, the Lord, Yahweh, is mentioned over 5,000 times in the Old Testament. And it was a revelation of God's character. In fact, all that we can learn about God is designated by his name. His name is synonymous with himself, his glory, his holiness. Particularly here, his name is connected to the revelation of his covenant faithfulness to his people. Unchanging nature and sovereignty. And ultimately, we'll see at the end of this chapter, his compassion. This covenant name is the name that Jeremiah seemingly forgot. He knew the Lord in peace, but he seemed to struggle to maintain him during suffering. Sin and the confusion of it made him forget God. He forgot the oft-repeated and most fundamental things about God. God loves me. God has promised to never leave me. God will bring me home. Sin overtook his mind. Well, a few observations on this first point. When we suffer for sin, we must properly identify the cause. When we suffer for sin, we must properly identify the cause. We are ultimately dealing with God as our Father and deserve suffering, not the devil. Spiritual warfare is real, but I'm afraid that in many Christians' lives, we've created a boogeyman behind every bush. And what we're really dealing with is our own sin, desire that gives rise to temptation, which gives rise to sin, which gives rise to death. And dealing with God, think about this, dealing with God is better than the alternative. Frederick Nietzsche gazed long enough into the abyss of nothingness that it drove him mad for a decade before his death. He could not fathom a God much less a God in his pain or a purpose in that pain. If we give up God in suffering, something must take its place. If we give up God in our suffering, something will take its place. For a man like Nietzsche, it was the nothing, and it drove him mad. The cause of our suffering, beloved, is God. 
That's a stark reality we have to wrestle with. We, when we suffer for sin, we must properly identify the cause. But second observation, God gives us the language of suffering, the language of suffering. If it is God who is the cause of our suffering, <clears throat> then it is God who is the remedy. One of the remedies he gives us is allowing the hurting sinner to use the language of suffering to approach him directly. One theologian puts it this way. There's no need to recover somehow and then report back to God how you felt. There can be a direct approach to the one who can help and a restoration of the relationship. Those who suffer because of their own sins may cry out to God as readily as, readily as an innocent sufferer does. The text before us sanctions lament before God publicly. Publicly. We often suffer privately, but God gives us the language of suffering and sanctions the lament of public suffering for the Christian. Sadly, too many Christians are busy keeping up appearances for God-centered lament to have its full effect. But thirdly, I want you to be warned here, an observation about this, this first point. Theology matters. Theology matters. It matters especially in suffering. Dig your wells deep in times of peace. Dig your wells deep in times of peace. Pray and strengthen the bonds of communion between you and Christ while the trial is not upon you so that in times of discipline, you can keep a proper frame of mind. David recognized this in his great suffering for sin. Psalm 32, verse 6. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Think about this, beloved. Procrastination before the trial may prove your unpreparedness in the trial. Let me say that again. Procrastination before the trial may prove your unpreparedness in the trial. If you've been stimulated to a sense of deeper prayerfulness, then seek God there and seek him now. Don't delay. God is always ready to hear, but we're hardly ready to be heard. May the Lord hold his servants back from presumptuous sin. Theology matters. If you are suffering, strengthen the bonds between you and Christ now so that further suffering can be dealt with in a God-honoring way. So we saw hope destroyed. Secondly, let's see hope rising, verses 19 through 21. I'll read those again. Jeremiah says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Now, despite the crushing circumstances faced by Jeremiah, the last word in the expression of his exquisite pain proves this, this little vista of hope for us. This last word of Jeremiah's suffering proved to be the first place where his circumstances changed. And what is that? He remembered the Lord. He remembered the Lord. He mentions the Lord. The mention of the Lord in verse 18, the covenant name of God, seems to have affected this small change in his mood and his mindset. So notice, first of all, Jeremiah's agreement with God, verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. Jeremiah asked, to remember, asked God to remember his wandering and the soul-damaging effects of his sin. He called it wormwood, gall, bitterness. That's to say this, as his soul tasted sin, he found it to be utterly bitter and poison to him. His sin took him farther than he ever wanted to go, and it kept him longer than he ever wanted to stay. Deserved suffering provided for Jeremiah a cleansing of the palate, his taste for sin, 
What was once sweet to Jeremiah and life-giving became bitter poison to him. Remember the wormwood. Remember the gall, O Lord. This was Jeremiah agreeing with God that sin is exceedingly sinful. It was the changing of his appetite. It touched the depths of his soul. It was a whole-souled agreement with God. And in that, it's the first step in the restoration process of deserved suffering. If you are suffering for sin and your suffering is long, more than likely you have not agreed with God. Jeremiah agreed with God. But notice Jeremiah asked God to remember him, verse 19. Remember my affliction, Jeremiah says. Because Jeremiah remembered these things himself. In this calling upon God to remember, we see the faint birth of hope here. In this plea, Jeremiah does not presume upon God as if to say, mercy is somehow due to me, God. He's calling upon God to remember God's own commitment to his people's cause. Think about this. The most, the most powerful arguments we have in prayer in suffering are to give God's words back to him. Now, that's not in a, that's not in a haughty way, in a disrespectful way. Jeremiah is praying back to God the things God had already revealed about himself. God can't argue with truth. Jeremiah can't argue with truth. Suffering makes us think God has forgotten us. Calling upon him to remember is calling upon his covenant name, his own faithfulness. Remembrance of God permeates Scripture. Think about Genesis 8.1, God remembered Noah. We all know what happened there. Genesis 19, God remembered Abraham. Genesis 30, God remembered Rachel. 1 Samuel 1, God remembered Hannah. When the people of Israel were led out of captivity from Egypt, it says in Exodus 2, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant. Jeremiah is acting no differently. He's calling upon God to remember his covenant faithfulness to his people. He's confessing one great truth. God is not dead. And he is not deaf to the groanings of his people. He is calling on God to remember. But third, look at this. Notice the deliberate choice of hope. The deliberate choice of hope. Verse 21. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Now I use the word deliberate here deliberately. There is a deliberate choice on the part of Jeremiah to lift his eyes above the horizon of his suffering. Now, in the midst of discipline, he had a mind to take himself outside his circumstances and see beyond the immediate pain. Now, he attended no self-help seminar. He gave himself no stern motivational speech whereby he lectured himself about becoming a better human being. He didn't throw in his, in his earbuds, young folks, and crank up the music, go pump some iron, and eat healthy for a week to somehow self-medicate. Ladies, there was no spa day after a long, hard week here. Though his deserved suffering had physical consequences, the battle Jeremiah faced was ultimately a spiritual battle. It was a battle in his soul. He did not continue what was begun by the Spirit, by the works of the flesh. Jeremiah, in a sense, brought back to his own heart things about God that he knew to be true. Now, this is probably the most supernatural point in this entire event, if we could rank or weigh them. He remembered God. He remembered God. Hope was working contrary to nature here, beloved. If you've ever been in suffering, remembering God in those moments is literally where it seems that God meets you and things change. He remembered God. Hope was working contrary to nature here. 
There must be this deliberate shift of mind. The Christian must set his mind here. When we remember God, there is a purposeful moving of our minds away from despair and on to Christ. We set them back on a path to God. Now, how can it be that from the bottomness of the blackness of despair, something other than unbelief could be born here? How can hope rise from despair? It's, though, it's through, as Calvin says, the incomprehensible and wonderful kindness of God. When there is no ground for hope, beloved, remembering God is always new ground for hope. Did Jeremiah remember his sin? Indeed, he did. He remembered it continually, the text says. But by the grace of God, he also remembered God. In this, we can see God bringing light out of darkness, hope out of despair. Though the Christian be in great despair, he is never without hope. He's never without hope. Eternal life is at work in his heart. He must believe a lie for any, anything else to be the case. You have to believe a lie to believe there is no hope. Do you get that? Notice also the grace of God in the mind of Jeremiah here, verse 21. But this I call to mind. This I call to mind. God did not let Jeremiah forget him completely, even in seemingly unbearable suffering. And this is really the difference between the godly and the ungodly. Regarding the external nature of a man's sin, there is seemingly no difference between him and the unbeliever. Both suffer greatly, but there is an internal principle of grace in the believer that is working, that is, at, that is not at work in the other. It's for this reason, reason that hope lives in the chest of the believer. It's God working, perfecting, bringing to completion what he began, even in your deserved suffering for sin. Well, a few observations on this point. People, I think, are desperate for hope. People are desperate for hope. Our culture, college kids especially, are desperate for hope. They're so desperate for hope that they're turning to secular prophets like Jordan Peterson to give them some sort of structure for their life. Very popular book, 12 Rules for Life. Jordan Peterson wrote it, and it seems young people are just soaking this book in, soaking this man in. The turning point for Jeremiah, however, wasn't 12 Rules for Life. It was the one living God. Christ crucified all the implications of that fact, bearing down on his soul was the only hope that he had. And it's the only hope that we have, beloved, come what may. The foolishness of the gospel is what Jeremiah believed, and it kept him from going insane and spiraling down into despair where something like suicide seemed to be a better alternative than a living hell. The proverb is true. The hope of the righteous brings joy but the expectation of the wicked will perish. Jeremiah believed the gospel. He believed the promise, and it drew him out of the pit. Maybe we ought to believe that also. So people are desperate for hope, and Jeremiah had hope in the gospel. But also I want you to see something here. Suffering has its limits set by God. Suffering has its limits set by God. Suffering is for a time... It is set by God, and by God's grace, he did not allow Jeremiah to slip into unrecoverable despair. Listen to Psalm 103, verse 9. He will not always chide or keep his anger forever. Lamentations 3.32, though he calls grief, he will have compassion. Isaiah 42.3, a bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. When your life seemingly has 
no strength, no light, it seems, as a believer, no warmth because of the sin you're in. The gentleness of God can sustain you there. A bruised reed he will not break. There is a final fact about suffering, beloved. It's not eternal. It has its limits in the believer's life. Well, thirdly, look at hope's content, verses 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The content of hope is the character of God. The content of our hope is the character of God. Now, several things about God are noted as the content of Jeremiah's hope. Look, firstly, Jeremiah's hope was firstly in God's steadfast love. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That is his loyal love. It's, it's a relational love, an obligatory love, a binding love. God's steadfast love is the sphere of personal relationship. It's the love by which God enters into covenant with a person, committing to faithfully love them. Now, considering the nature of suffering for sin, one of the questions that arises in our hearts most naturally is this. Does God hate me? I don't know if you've ever been in a prolonged suffering, and maybe we're too spiritual to to say those things out loud, but have you ever wondered, does God hate me? We reason at that point, beloved, from our circumstances, not from the character of God, and that's the problem. We reason from our circumstances and not from the character of God. So it's fitting that Jeremiah begins here. The content of our hope in the sanctification and discipline of God is his loyal, steadfast love. Secondly, Jeremiah's hope was God's merciful love. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new. His mercies never come to an end. Jeremiah calls it mercies, plural, mercies. God's mercy toward us as guilty sinners is manifold. Naturally, his mercies are over all his creation. Psalm 145.9 makes that clear. Life, breath, food, sunrises, sunsets, western Michigan, laughter, love, friendship, all, of, all are the mercies of God. Supernaturally speaking, it is salvation and the connection to God that it brings for eternity. I had an old preacher say this over and over again, and it strikes me when I think about God's merciful love and in my suffering when things don't go my way. And it's the phrase, whatever happens to me today, I am not going to hell. Just think about that. That puts a lot into context for us, right? Whatever happens to me today as a believer, I'm not going to hell. God's merciful love was over Jeremiah, and, that, and it's that in which he hoped. Notice also, thirdly, the content of Jeremiah's hope was God's new love. God's new love. Jeremiah says God's love and mercy were new every morning. That Jeremiah saw light for his eyes on a regular basis during such a disorienting time as he experienced this deserved suffering for sin, gave him reason for hope. This is where the practicality of God ministering to our hearts, just, it just meets the road here. The rubber meets the road. God's love was fresh to him every day. Sin will bring us down into a very unspiritual frame of mind. The earthly things around Jeremiah spoke to his earthly heart. And it was a mercy of God that they did. It reminded him of the newness of God's love. Something as simple as the consistency of a sunrise ministered to Jeremiah's heart. Now, if you've ever been in a disorienting suffering, consistency, repetition, basic, simple things minister to you. They give you uh, 
assurance and a foundation to work from. And here the Lord says, his mercies are new every morning. Something as simple as the consistency of a sunrise offered hope to Jeremiah's mind. Well, fifthly, Jeremiah reasoned to the conclusion, God's love is faithful. They are new every morning. Verse 23 says, great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah concluded that God's faithfulness to complete what he began was a great reason to hope. God was this, in Jeremiah's mind, wise master builder. God was tearing down Jeremiah's heart for the world and building up in its place a greater trust and love for him. Jeremiah's sin would not triumph God's plan. God's love is faithful to the end. What he begun, what he began in you, beloved, he will complete. That's the joys of your life and the trials. He will bring them to completion. So I'll make one passing observation here, and it's this. We are saved by God, from God, for God. We are saved by God, from God, and for God. The wounds which God caused, only God can heal. Just think about that. The wounds which God causes, only God can heal. Well, fourth point, hope's meditation. Verses 24 through 39. Notice there is one principal thing to which every Christian returns. There's this this one thing that the Christian always returns to in every situation that leads him away from God, no matter what that may be. Look at verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. There's one principal thing the Christian always returns to in every situation that leads him away from God. God is everything to Jeremiah. God is everything to the Christian. Boil down the Christian, strip away everything that he has, and God is all the believer confesses to have in this life and the life to come. Jeremiah just didn't affirm this with his mouth. He said it with his very soul. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. God is all I have, Jeremiah said. His city was destroyed. His countrymen, his family, and his friends were all led captive because of sin. He sat alone. All that he he had known as a way of life was gone. It was gone. What portion did he have on this earth? What stuff could he lay claim to in this world? What did he truly possess? He had God. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. It's a fact of the new birth, beloved. If we are children of God, then we are heirs of God. We inherit God. God is our inheritance. That's what Jeremiah is saying. That should make the things of the world very easy to let go. Nothing is permanent here but God alone. What did Adam have in the garden? God. But he wanted something else. What did the Israelite have in the wilderness? God. But they wanted something else. What do we have as children of God? We have God. Do we want something else? The one principal thing that the Christian always returns to in his suffering is God. He is their portion. But notice this, the pattern of progression in Jeremiah's heart. This is just beautiful, beloved, how God ministers to us here. Look at this. If you remember nothing I've said, just pay attention here. Notice the pattern of progression in Jeremiah's heart. We see a natural progression in the heart of Jeremiah as he meditates on the Lord. And this is a pattern, I believe, for every one of us. In our lives, this is how God works. So look at this. 
Hope led to waiting. Hope led to waiting. The text says the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Jeremiah couldn't save himself. He would not find refuge anywhere else. His hope was in God, and for God he waited. His sin, all sin, makes it purely impossible to recover by human means. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Hope led to waiting. But notice this, waiting led to quiet waiting. Look at verse 26. It's not just waiting on the Lord. Jeremiah says, it's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Why does Jeremiah enlarge upon waiting here? Why quiet waiting? Isn't waiting on God enough? The busyness of Jeremiah's heart was now still. Quiet waiting for God is the result of a content heart. Quiet waiting for God is the result of a content heart. I've told my kids plenty of times, wait right there for me. And they're fidgety, they're jumpy, they start wrestling with one another. They're waiting, but there's a difference in quiet waiting. It's when the heart of the believer is calmed before the Father and content with what God is doing in their life. Though Jeremiah did not presently have what he desired, his quiet waiting showed the assurance of what he hoped for would be realized one day. Proof of that is he waited quietly. Hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So hope led to waiting. Waiting led to a quiet waiting, which evidenced a content heart. Quiet waiting led to silence. So that quiet waiting was an internal disposition of the heart. But then Jeremiah says, quiet waiting led to silence. Look at verses 27 through 29. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. One of the greatest signs that we just aren't getting it when we're under the discipline of God we keep talking. We keep talking. I don't know how many times I've disciplined my kids and it's justification after justification after justification. I know when they're hearing me, when their ears are opened, why? Because their mouth is closed. Jeremiah says, quiet waiting leads to silence. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks but contented hearts produce closed lips. Contented hearts produce closed lips. Jeremiah's mouth was stopped. And beloved, I argue that it is at this very point he becomes teachable because he's able to hear now. So hope led to waiting Waiting leads to quiet waiting. That's an internal disposition of the heart. Quiet waiting leads to silence. You're no more complaining with your lips and you become teachable. And then silence led to rest. He rested in the fact that what the Lord was doing was right. And there was a willing acceptance of the discipline. This is seen in several places. Look at uh, verse 30. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. In other words, let him experience the discipline of the Lord. Verses 38 and 39. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Jeremiah rested in the rightness of God's actions. 
Silence led to rest. He rested in the rightness of God's actions. And then finally, rest led to trust. He knew, according to verse 33, God does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. An otherwise dangerous, proce- uh, dangerous phrase, Jeremiah trusted the process. Jeremiah trusted the process. And if, you have, if you've ever been under the discipline of the Lord for a prolonged period of time, there's a sense in which you understand what I'm saying there. Jeremiah trusted the process. Many unanswered questions, many things where you don't experience a um, direct word from God, and he had, to, he had to trust the process. Rest led to trust, and he knew that God did not afflict from his heart. Well, an observation here. God uses the same means in both the believer and the unbeliever, but for very different ends. God uses the same means in a believer and an unbeliever, but for very different ends or purposes or the goal. Does God leave the believer and unbeliever alike to temptations and corruptions of heart at times? Absolutely. Does God withhold his grace from a believer and an unbeliever alike at times so their understanding is hindered? Jeremiah says he does. What does the effect, however, produce in each case? For the unbeliever, they harden their heart. They double down on their convictions and their heart begins to burn harder and harder against God. It may not be sudden, but it's like a gradual weed that grows over the garden of all the good that God has planted in them. As the days go by, It makes their heart louder and louder, and they move farther and farther from God. For the believer, what does the means, what do the means of discipline tend toward in our lives? Well, I think first and foremost, it's a discovery of the strength of sin remaining in us. When God disciplines us, we just really find out how dirty we really are the deceitfulness of our own hearts. We're humbled. We're brought closer to God and brought into a more constant dependence upon him. It makes us watchful for future occasions of sin. It makes us have eyes to see the things that brought us into the place we are now and prevents us from going there again. It breaks off the flesh from us. And ultimately, it silences our hearts. God uses the same means in both believer and unbeliever, but for very different ends. Another observation in this text is this. We owe each other a great deal of grace and patience as the Lord deals with us in our sin. We owe each other a great deal of grace and patience as the Lord deals with us in our sin. When Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave, he gave him the courtesy and time to unravel his grave clothes. Think about that. He gave Lazarus the common courtesy to unravel his grave clothes. Sanctification is a lifetime process. Some have walked farther down the path of sin than others, and therefore they must walk back up that very same path to God. Beloved, it's called pilgrim's progress for a reason. Verses 24 through 39 in this chapter are the product of a process in Jeremiah's life. He did not arrive at these great truths overnight. These great conclusions, the precision in which he articulated them, the hearty resolve to live and teach others the same was not arrived at overnight, beloved. The challenge of our heart is why it's easier to write someone off than than to work with them through a sin issue. Why is it easier to hack your brother off than it is to be patient through a season of sin? I cannot imagine the spirit of gentleness in the restoration of a brother or sister being at the same time a spirit of impatience. 
They don't go together. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 is our charge. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. We owe each other a great deal of patience as we bear one another's burdens. Well, finally, the fifth point and our final point. Hope's Confession, verses 40 and 42. 40 through 42. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not forgiven. Hope led to the quiet waiting of a busy heart. A quiet heart led to a silent mouth, and a silent mouth led to resting in the fact that what the Lord was doing was right. And we see in verses 40 through 42 the result of the process. Resting in God led to confession and repentance. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. God crushed Jeremiah. God was right. God was right. But God was his hope, and therefore to God he must return. Well, what is the eschatology of suffering? That's the title of the sermon. What is the end goal of suffering? It's God. It's returning to him, confessing him to be everything. Now, if that crescendo is, the, is a disappointment to you, I wonder if you know him. That's all we have, beloved. That's all I can offer you. I am no wise man. Whatever you may be going through, I, the only thing I have to give you is God. That's it. Suffering increases our capacity for God. We grow greater by it, and it yields in us the peaceful fruit of righteousness and ushers us into the kingdom of glory. Only a wise father could do these things and produce such a wonderful result. When all is said and done and the pain is over and we look back on those events, I hope we can agree with the psalmist. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for the grace of your word, for the mercy of your word. Thank you for the wisdom of your word to give us guidance and counsel in suffering. May we heed it, may we be humble, and may we confess that you are right in all things. In Christ's name, amen.